Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest in West Coast Live is an expert on boxing. And uh, she's also written over uh, 55 novels, numerous short stories. Uh, She's a professor of English, and her current book is called A Widow's Story, a Memoir. Uh, her reflections and diary entries after the death of her husband in uh, 2008, Raymond Smith. And it's a testament to, uh, to grief, and it's by the author of The Female of the Species, The Grave Digger's Daughters, uh, numerous novels that are gothic, terrifying, that explore the daily and the quotidian. Will you please welcome Joyce Carol Oates to West Coast Live. How do you do? What, this is a, a black cover with orange typescript, a little red apostrophe, and I, is that a photograph of, of you on the cover in sort of slow motion? Well, it's a very interesting image because it's a woman's photograph. The face of a woman, you would not know it was me necessarily, and it's blurred to suggest a kind of doubleness or a blurringness of personality after a trauma, which I, we all experience and I thought that was a beautiful image by a photographer named Jane Creech, who lives in South Carolina. Do you get involved in the selection of your book jacket art? Oh, I, I try to, yes, yes. I saw you have this wonderful cover, this uh, Caravaggio. This is, uh, you can't see it probably, but she's cutting the head off of her, of. Holofernes, how do you pronounce that name? Judith, and it's, it's a wonderful image, and the expression on the man's face is one of a startled look. Like, he'd been used to being like the, the macho character in the drama, but that's the woman's taken over with a knife, and this is fantastic cover. Not for the faint-hearted, and maybe not for most men to look at. The title is called uh, The Female of the Species, Tales of Mystery and Suspense. That's right, with women in the ascendancy. Women in the book do the things that men always do, and so it seems really startling and subversive, because it's things that men do. In, in your memoir uh, and your recollection of your life with Raymond Smith, you, you muse, though, about how it's the, the woman's role to help look after men. Well, I think I said more than that. Well, you did. Uh, you usually do. I think there was, was more nuance to it. Uh, uh, I can't imagine that I said it's women's role to look at the men. I think I was talking at one, one paragraph about the repository of memory in a relationship. And I noticed that you're married. We have basically the same wedding band on, but uh, that's a different story. I, we won't get into that. But probably in your relationship or my relationship or anyone's, the repository of memory in the relationship will fall more to one person than the other. It doesn't have to be divided according to male and female, but often it does happen that the woman is one who keeps the photograph album. She's the one who, who telephones people. She remembers when it's someone's birthday, including the husband's birthday. And so in my marriage, I was, to, to make it sound very meta- metaphoric or, or exalted, I think I was the repository of memory because my husband didn't have this sort of sentimentality or nostalgia about the past that I had. 
And maybe that's why I'm a writer, because I feel that the past is just fraught with so much emotion and and that's the, the very air of memory is somewhat melancholy but beautiful. Part of your diary or account of the grief is, is uh, noticing signposts. I mean, as you go along through the year since he died, I mean, you were memory, uh, remembering things, but also discovering things about him too, reading his, his journals that he hadn't known. It was, it was interesting to read that he hadn't read your, your books, your, your, your novels. Yes, my husband had not read my, my works of fiction which means he is in with a, a very large group of people, actually. <laughs> <laughs> They're the great majority. This is one more figure. Uh, but it's... Uh, you I would ask whether you've read them. I've, I have not read all 55, I will tell you that. Or is it 56 or 57? You, you turn them out with a fluidity that other writers must be extraordinarily envious of. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but... Um, that, it's not really a fluidity. It might, it might appear that way. Yeah. What, uh, how, would, how should we view it? I mean, because they come out with uh, a regularity. You know, some people say, I've, I've spent five years working on this book. Uh, well, you're, you do a short story in a couple of months or well, weeks. You don't have to have a view of it. <laughs> All right. I mean, it's just something that happens, you know. Um, Given, given the subject material of, of your books, are, are you surprised to find yourself still alive? Is that a serious question? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is. I mean, when, when, you, when, you, when you think, you know, one of the things that you... Dostoevsky? I haven't had a chance to interview no, him yet. Bill. He's gone. Hemingway. I would. I would ask them. Mm, you wouldn't ask that of Hemingway. Anyway, what was the question again? Well, I wouldn't ask him with a loaded shotgun in the room. I mean. The idea is that... I'm For instance, I mean, you find yourself a survivor. You've 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 survived the death of 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 your husband, and you find yourself thinking about uh, his his life, and that you're still alive, and that you've survived a year. Uh, and I would think that, given also the subject of a lot of your material, the books, you think about mortality. You know, the way that the Buddhists say it's good to think about death every day. Well, maybe it's hard to survive some interviews. That's, that's, a, that's a challenge. No, I think about the interview as be people, two people, I guess, usually, and something like a canoe that's sort of spinning out of control, and each has a paddle, but I don't always know what to do with the paddle, but it's this way or that way, so I, I have to depend on someone else. Well, we might be heading toward a whirlpool. I don't know. Well, maybe we're in the, in, in the pool. So what was the question again? If you, if you find yourself surprised oh, to be, to be yes. alive. Yes, I think that's true, and I think to be very serious about it, I felt that when I became a widow, I mean, it sounds somewhat pretentious, there are so many people who've suffered even in much greater traumas in the world, I sort of felt that I stepped through a door into another dimension, and that when I turned back, the door had shut and locked, and I, I couldn't really get back into that other world, and there's a certain desperation, and maybe you, maybe it's analogous also to being wounded or handicapped in, in some way, where you, you learn to adjust to the new life. And then if somebody asks you later on, you know, how you're surviving, you almost can't remember that there was another way. You know, in, in fact, I think as we move through our lives, we don't always remember that there was another way. Or I thought of another analog, because when 
when I became a widow, I was just fraught with all these epiphanies and all these revelations because I was alone so much. And when you're all alone with only a couple of somewhat unfriendly cats, they didn't behave with the slobbering affection one would, want, would get from a dog. My cats sort of blamed me for my husband having disappeared from the household, and so they would just sort of run away from me, and that was very hurtful. But when you are all alone, you, you think in a very existential way, and you think somewhat deeply. And I was very struck by the nice tone in, in, the, in this, this interview program, wonderful music, fantastic music, and very nice relationship with the audience and a lot of laughter. But you see, when you're all alone, you almost never laugh. That's a social experience. So when you're physically alone, you're not going to laugh, so a whole part of your brain just sort of stops. And there are other things that you don't do when you're all alone. But I think that you're thinking in some profound way. You may be led to read poetry or philosophy, which is what I was doing. And you sort of feel that the great truths are right out there in, in the last pages of King Lear, for instance, or the poetry of Emily Dickinson. But most people are surrounded by a very bright and populated and cheerful world in the moment, so they're not aware of those things. And so I guess one survives by being in the moment rather than having this other vision. Sometimes friends can say the right thing. Sometimes they say the wrong thing. Friendships shift in the, during this time of, of grief. Uh, uh, it, clearly friends looked after you. People wrote you letters, uh, uh, communicated with you. Somebody, uh, I think Gail Godwin, you, you quote as saying, you know, uh, grieve long and hard, you know, Ray was worth it? Suffer, Joyce, Ray was worth it. Yeah. When I called Gail Godwin, who's a friend of mine, I might don't see too often, but she is a friend, I called her to tell her that Ray had died, her, she had lost her husband about three years before. She said, oh my God, Joyce, you're going to be so unhappy. And she spoke just from the heart, you know, and then maybe suffer, Joyce, Ray was worth it came in an email because it was more maybe a little bit later. But I think you're quite right, and most people don't know how to behave, and it's, it's awkward, and i very sympathetic. I became extremely sympathetic with other people. Um, I became very sympathetic with people who self-medicate or who are alcoholics or take drugs or people who behave in ways that seem desperate. I may have thought years ago, especially when I was younger, that they were weak people and that one, if one were behaving more in a more moral way, one would not take drugs. But then after my husband died, I thought life is just so painful. I'm surprised more people aren't drug addicts. <laughs> And more people aren't alcoholics, and more people don't commit suicide. It's basically amazing that so many people have this resilience, which comes from having a sense of humor and being in the world. And yet suicide was something that you considered theoretically at some point. I mean, just as, a, as one of the notions that passes through the mind. And... Well, late at night, one thinks about all kinds of things. And Nietzsche said that the thought of suicide is a great consolation. It gets us through many a difficult night. That's a wonderful remark. 
Nietzsche, as a brilliant psychologist as well as a philosopher, but he himself did not commit suicide. And Albert Camus wrote very, very beautifully about this existential predicament. But I really felt um, that the thoughts that I had, which were sort of like Hamlet's thoughts, and very dire and dark and, and depressing, I really felt that those vis that vision of the universe, which is basically stark and, and not very populated at all, that that was a true vision and true existential vision. But it's so painful and so stark that we can't live with it. And so people have, it's as if you put up a smoked, piece of smoked glass so you don't see the sun, so you don't become blind. So people who, are, who have had a happy marriage then would want to replicate a happy marriage. Or people who have had good friendships, they want to have, they move to a new city, they want to make, they make new friendships. Women who like, or men who like to cook and have people over for dinner, if they move to a new place, they want to do that again because there's something about the whole process of the rhythms of being with other people. We only have one another. There is a stark and profoundly depressing inhuman void outside beyond the human, the lighted human uh, world and the world of language and, and music. And we all love the music that we heard. It was just so binding us all together. I thought, the, I thought what happiness to be in a, in a girl band. <laughs> it's much easier than being a novelist and, and being a professor. But they really seem to have a lot of fun. And there's something about music, as I said, it's so communal and, and really so wonderful. Would you ever uh, sit in and join a band, do you think? Well, I, could, I did once play the piano. I haven't played in so long, but... Uh, it's nice to listen to her. It's just, it's, I think we all, we all like to dance. I love to dance. And because it's hard for me to listen to the music like that without wanting, wanting to dance. We have a dance floor here. Yeah, well, we can, we can dance later. <laughs> would, you, uh, would you dance on your own? You know, when, you're, when your husband was at, was at work or working on the Ontario Review, or, you know, would, would you like put on music and move around? Well, I like to run. I did a lot of running, and I still like to run. Uh, I just don't seem to have as much time as I used to have. But running is very a very wonderful thing. It's it's like dancing in a way, except you're you're moving forward and you're flying through time and space. And to run all alone in some beautiful natural setting, I think is really wonderful. And I do my writing. I, I sort of scroll through my writing from that morning. I have somewhat of a, a photographic memory for short-term things. So I can sort of be editing my work while I'm running. And that is so wonderful. Or I can think of a, of a new chapter or a new short story while I'm running, and then I can go back and work on it. So the, the physical be, uh, being flying through time and space is really wonderful. I'm sure there are people in the room who like to run. I, that reminds me of something Spalding Gray said about skiing. He said he was so delighted when he could, he learned about skiing because you could be moving forward while standing still at the same oh, time. That's good <laughs> until you until you fall down and break your neck. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're standing still or sitting still, I suppose, for a while. That's too dangerous. Yeah. Ski, skiing is a little dangerous. Yeah. Well, do you, when you're running, I mean, do you have a, you don't have a headset on, you're paying attention to traffic, you know, crossing the street. Well, there's not much traffic where I run in Princeton, New Jersey. No? Oh, uh, no. Why, why would one run in traffic? You know, if people live in an urban area, they go out running traffic all the time. Not in traffic, maybe. maybe. Haven't you seen these people, they're they the bouncing at the edge of the sidewalk, maybe waiting for the, the cars to go, and then they run across? Oh, but they're running on a sidewalk, yeah. actually. Oh. I mean, they're not completely... 
I mean, I'm new to this part of the world, but I don't think you're completely insane that you're running right in the traffic <laughs> in San Francisco. You know, when you're on those running endorphins, God knows what you're going to do, you know, but... Well, I'm having one of my great dreams realized this morning. To be interviewed on West Coast Live. Oh, thank you. It's a a great pleasure to have you on the show, and many people here are delighted to to see you. This is a step in my direction of realizing my dream. (laughs) An interview by a man with red shoes. And I get to interview a woman in in a beautiful purple leather jacket. There are no men in red shoes in Princeton. Why is that? They're just very boring men, except, <laughs> I mean, they're just sort of pref professors and they take themselves very seriously. It's not Did you over- overlap with Albert Einstein? Um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I can't remember when you went to Princeton. I know I you were to, in Detroit and other places. I went to the prom with him. Oh, nice. <laughs> How did he invite you? Was it by a note, by an equation? He was lots of fun. <laughs> this kind of crazy, goofy, white-haired guy. <laughs> he just sort of invented the atom bomb, you know, over the weekend. and it's, just... it's all relative, I guess, for him. I mean, uh, he just does, does those things. Right, very, well, oh, I know, I know. <laughs> all right, so that would probably get it out, out from one of your stories. When do you, when do you know when your story is, is done? You know, your, your, your short story is finished. How do you know when, when you're reading a story, how do you know it's done? Well, there are no more words usually. There's a little box at the end or a third. You turn the page, turn the page you, and you there's t- an there's, ad. There's nothing there, right? right. right. It's, it's somewhat analogous to that. Yeah. You just, you know, you work along and then you look and there's nothing else. You use it all up. But novelists and, and short story writers work harder than poets, I think. And we, we make a little more money, but we deserve it because we write all the way out to the margin. <laughs> and we're kind of really working hard, whereas the poets have this little kind of skeletal thing. So it's the, you see their work more kind of like Giacometti then, kind of really skinny then. and, and poetry, yeah. But no, I'm a novelist, basically. That's my real identity. And we're like the long-distance truckers of literature. We get in the big cab and you drive the huge truck all the way out to the West Coast and then sort of turn around and all, all the way back and just sort of driving. And people who are not writers or maybe live with writers, um, they don't understand that a writer actually works long hours. And people say to me sort of breathlessly, oh, how did you write 50 books or a thousand books or how many books you've written? And they say, oh, you know, I could never do that. I don't have time or something. And the answer is basically that, that you work. There's no, there's no mystery at all. You sort of work, you sit down, and, and, you, and you actually do the work. Not a mystery at all. Did work get you through grief, or did you find that the grief Im- imperiled your work and, and, uh, before returning to it? Well, the, uh, what you call grief was some sort of profound physical experience, I think. I think that when people have a loss, it's like having a, an illness. It's like having a very high fever, a high temperature. And you're in a state that's visceral and physical. It's neurological and emotional and psychological. It's all these things together. Or maybe analogous to losing a leg. But yet, even though you've lost your leg, you have some crutches and you're going to pretend to be normal. So a lot of what people do, 
I'm not sure you know, how you would handle it or people in the audience, but a, long, a lot of what some people do is pretend to be normal and they're imposters of their own life. I feel that I was going through the motions of my own life. I didn't feel there was an alternative. It was a sort of desperate thing, but then, you know, after a while when you're on your crutches sort of hobbling along, it, it does get a little easier. The account is a memoir called A Widow's Story by Joyce Carol Oates. We're out of time. That's the end of the story there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Joyce Carol Oates here on West Coast Live today from ODC Theater. Sedge Thompson, safe journey to next week. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.